And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. Welcome to another episode of the Startup Hustle podcast. I am your guest host, Melissa Vincent. I'm the executive director of Pipeline Entrepreneurs. And for those of you who don't know, we are taking over Startup Hustle podcast for four episodes. This is our fourth and final episode. We are a fellowship of high growth entrepreneurs who happen to call the Midwest home. And I am super excited to be here today with our guest, the always amazing, always fantastic entrepreneur, Donald Hawkins. Donald, welcome to the show. Melissa, thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Good. Well, I have been looking forward to getting to record with you for quite a while. Um, You are an entrepreneur of epic proportion. You are so involved in the community. You have so such a rich and awesome story of how you got involved in startups to begin with. So, I mean, I just need to hear from the beginning, how did you get started? And then I just can't wait to hear more about all the things you're doing right now. Awesome. Well, thanks, Melissa. Yeah, it, it is uh, a, a very peculiar entrepreneurial journey, to say the least. Uh, I grew up in a really small town uh, in South Georgia uh, called Albany. And um, when I was about 11 or 12 years old, my father uh, got this new boss, this 26-year-old hotshot kid from Notre Dame uh, that moved from uh, from Illinois down to Albany to uh, run the accounting side of the Procter & Gamble plant. Well, he was really smart right and call my father chief so for the first four to five years of my life i actually thought my dad was his boss but i learned later that that was just a tool that he utilized to make sure that his his peers and his employees recognized that he valued them. so i started learning lessons from this guy way back then uh when the internet started to get popular uh, a lot of people really went into chat rooms and games and i saw him start a business uh, with a PC in his house on the side, my first time seeing an internet side hustle, you know, true to life, and uh, watched him build the website himself. Uh, I mean, back then, if, if anybody on that's listening can remember, it was a Microsoft front page, and we used this <laughs> protocol called WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. Yes. And uh, <laughs> yep, and he he built his first site as a, a drop shipping company uh, to help people sell their products. And uh, I was just amazed, you know, with how he was able to grow this thing uh, on the side. So years passed. uh, I got the bug bad uh, from that. There's no way I could go back as a kid after seeing what that looked like. Uh, Left Albany, moved to the big city of Atlanta, Georgia. One of the best things that happened to me kind of put me in a position where I had to figure out who I was um, and got involved in entrepreneurship, started a company called Dr. Phonebook. Uh, at the time, uh, doctors did not have a, a really effective way to take advantage of the new digital types of advertising. They were never really good at it, still aren't that good at it as well. And I, uh, I ended up creating a website where doctors could actually pay us monthly fee for a profile page. We advertised their specific profile page on Google. 
Uh, back then, the clicks only cost about 12 to 14 cents a pop. I'm also aging myself on that one. <laughs> uh, and, and we did really well. I actually ended up selling that company uh, to my roommate's father. So it was the most money that I'd ever seen. And um, I got involved in every type of micro slash angel investment that I could with anybody from my hometown. Mm-hmm. Uh, that led to me actually purchasing uh, a magazine just because why not? Like what entrepreneurs don't want to own a magazine uh, from my best friend's sister. And that journey led me to uh, to the Midwest. I ended up uh, becoming the national sales director uh, for the company that produced the magazine. I realized later they had 50 to 60 magazines nationwide, a nice print media and digital media lifestyle brand. And uh, that's actually how I ended up uh, here in Kansas City. Uh, and a lot of really cool things interspersed in there as well, uh, including a brick and mortar 3D ultrasound business, which uh, we did really well in as well. Crazy. Wow. Okay. So clearly the serial entrepreneur, right? So what, from that experience, I love that you said you immediately wanted to invest, do these little micro investments in anyone and everyone from your hometown. So what did you, what positive or negative things did you learn from that? Did that make you realize you know, that, how did that help? How did that help you kind of gear up for where you are now? Yeah, you know, I think one of the keys to entrepreneurship is experiences, right? And I feel one of my specific strengths is that I've, I've seen so many different types of businesses. I've heard and experienced so many different types of business models that I can instantly make some quick, quick decisions on things that are likely good and things that I know for a fact kind of suck uh, as well. I learned a lot, right? You know, uh, what I I learned the most from that experience was that product is important. Solving a pain point is really important, but how you sell and acquire customers is like king. And that typically is the last thing entrepreneurs look at, right? It's like, man, Melissa, I have this amazing product. You know, I can turn oxygen into gasoline. (laughs) Awesome. And then you ask that entrepreneur, great, how are you going to get customers? I'm going to advertise on Facebook like that's everybody's to answer right so uh, I mean I was I saw so many different models so many things that I felt would work that didn't work that I felt was like no way this is going to work that crushed it as well and it caused me to be able to pull all those little nuanced things and really figure out how to develop and build businesses you know uh, with, with, without being so heavy on the capital side earlier on like, there's a lot of things you can do to build traction and to, uh, to scale a business, you know, without going out raising like a monster pre-seed round. Right. You bootstrapped. Mm-hmm. So did you learn, so when you were doing the investments, did you, were you mostly investing in people because they were friends, they were in your community, or were you looking at it at that point so early in your career, were you looking at it from a strategic perspective of, I really think this is going to make it, or was it more, I care about this person and so I'm going to invest? Well, no, so it, it was really more so my, my hometown is one of the poorest cities in the country, right? And I was very fortunate to grow up uh, in the household and with the parents that I, that I did. Uh, and uh, for me, I felt it was kind of my way of being able to give back, you know, uh, recognizing that a lot of people that look like me did not have the same upbringing and did not get the same benefits that I had growing up. 
And uh, and to be completely frank, even how many little boys from my hometown just so happen, you know, to get to know, you know, uh, the a person who's now the CFO of AutoZone, what's the CFO of Hertz, what's the CFO of Nielsen Holdings. You get to know them when you're like 11, 12 years old and call on them as a mentor for your entire life. Super fortunate, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, but also just giving people a shot, right? I mean, sometimes that's all an entrepreneur is looking for. Just give me a shot. Let me get my at bat and let me show you what I could do. When I was a kid and even as an entrepreneur, in a lot of cases, that's all we're really asking for. Give me an at bat, right? Yep. And for a lot of brown people, it's hard to get that at bat, right? And if you do get it, it's typically not a very good at bat, right? Either, you know, not enough funding to really get over the hump. So we want to make a sports analogy that's like, you know, uh, 12-year-old Donald Hawkins going to the major leagues to get my at, at bat against Roger Clemens. <laughs> you know, I mean, what, what can I do with that, right? right. So, uh, yeah, so for a lot of the, those entrepreneurs, you know, the, the companies were bust, right? And right? a lot of them have actually done really well. Uh, some have pivoted into completely different things. But the one thing that I, I think I'm happiest about is we all helped each other kind of gain more of an entrepreneurial mindset to think different, right? To pull on different disparate pieces of data that you might not have thought applied to your business to really find something to make your, your business be differentiated. You know, so you bring up an interesting point. So, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it. So I think when you see an entrepreneur who's only been in one area, um, in one industry versus someone like yourself, who has been in completely different industries, the ability to, as you said, kind of pull from these different systems and create something and see how that different vantage point allows you to actually create a very, um, I think a well-rounded business going forward because you're not just having these blinders on for this one industry. What are your thoughts on that? Do you, you know, do you agree? Do you kind of want people to have some, some failures early and often because as you get into you know, future companies, you realize, like, because you've gone through and seen the mistakes, how to adjust, how to get through it? Yeah, 100%. I, I will tell you one of the best lessons that I've ever learned as an entrepreneur came from operating a brick and mortar business. I mean, they're just completely separate lessons that as a, a tech entrepreneur or product based, you know, entrepreneur, you just don't really get to touch, right? You know, so we had to, so my wife and I created out this company called Peekaboo 3D Ultrasound. So here's the quick story. So, uh, so funny how men and women can see things so differently. We were pregnant with my daughter and my wife wanted to go get 3D ultrasound done. So we go to this facility, you know, uh, in our city and we're in there for like 15 minutes. I get the bill and it's like 400 bucks. And my wife is like, oh my God, the baby's so cute. That, that's my nose, that's my ear. And the entire time I'm thinking to myself, I just dropped $400 in 15 minutes. What the hell? And it was like not a very uh, large office. Like the, the room was just like a bed, a TV, like a super small waiting room. It was only one person working in the facility at a time. And my brain is like, now, you know what? If I can get enough of these, we can do this. <laughs> we can do that. So literally a year passes by, a year passes by and, uh, another 3d ultrasound facility opened up in uh in our city and my wife was like uh you know we should have done that 
And I was like, all right, you just messed up. Cause I was waiting on her to kind of give me the go ahead. <laughs> and, uh, we found, we found the location in Dunwoody, Georgia. Uh, I went all the way through purchasing a, a hospital grade 3d ultrasound machine. That part was nuts. Uh, <laughs> and all the equipment that comes with it. It was nice, right? You know, we had like this really nice bed, this 70 inch screen TV sofas. And my wife crushed it, right? I mean, she would be there like for five to six hours a day and could easily walk away, right? Two to three grand. Uh, and then my wife decided one day she didn't want to do that anymore. So so now I had to learn, all right, crap. Now I guess I'm running, you know, a 3D ultrasound uh, business. Now, mind you, I was not the one in there doing the sonogram and all that other stuff, but we uh, we hired out and, you know, negotiating, leasing uh, with the landlord, keeping track of, products and what we had to order and inventory you know typically from a tech venture you never touch that stuff right no uh no. we actually and we ended up doing uh two of those uh it ended up exiting that business and that part was neat because we got to also work through selling products so how many tech entrepreneurs can say they sold an ultra ultrasound machine to an OBGYN in california so <laughs> that was a process also lots of really neat things yeah, so, but going this to your broad your broader point, yeah, I mean, being able to gain as much experience from as many different industries and verticals as early as possible will make you a powerful entrepreneur later on down the line because you have so much experience to pull on. Well, and I there was a an entrepreneur I spoke to one time, and I loved he said that as entrepreneurs we're afraid of failure, and so the best thing we could be doing is spending our time failing. So fail early, fail often um, with, again, this goes to your point about bootstrapping. So before you take on other people's money, getting, you know, your idea to a place where you can actually test it, because then if you fail, you failed quickly, you failed early, you've not, you know, spent other people's money trying to do that. And so what, what have your, um, you're, I know that right now you're the co-founder of Casey Collective, which I'd love to hear, have you share about Casey Collective, because that's a resource for entrepreneurs. Is that advice that you give people, you know, when they're coming to you as part of Casey Collective, how do you help them kind of navigate that, you know, do I bootstrap? Do I raise capital? I, you know, have this idea, didn't work. What do I do now? Yeah, so um, so KC Collective, for those of you all that, that don't know, is a, it's a, in a small group uh, here in the KC region of uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, we call ourselves low-tech because it's really just about developing density uh, between entrepreneurs. We want to get to know each other, learn from each other, uh, help each other see around corners. Uh, so my, my number one piece of advice for almost every entrepreneur is get traction by any means necessary, right? You know, because you look at the way the, the world of venture is set up, especially, you know, if, if you're something that's like a lifestyle business versus an investable business, you got to have something that's going to make people, either prospective clients or either, either investors, to really see some level of interest uh, as well. So you want to do a lot of internal due diligence. Like, you got to be able to pass your own BS test, right? I feel like sometimes entrepreneurs like we'll come up with concepts and ideas and we know internally that for us it's kind of BS, but we kind of expect for other people to not think it's BS. But if you just stop and do that internal due diligence and be like, bro, those numbers don't make sense. Make the numbers make sense. 
or you know my go to market strategy cannot be acquire facebook and then use that data to do it right you know what i mean like make it make sense to you first you you got to get past your own internal bs test and go to your friends and go hey man how does this sound right and if it does not pass that then go back to the lab start over right you know uh but then i find a lot of entrepreneurs they they struggle with man how do i get somebody to invest in an idea that i've never done before i have no real experience in yeah traction by any means necessary so what does that mean that means picking up the phone calling 100 prospective customers and saying hey i did a survey with 100 customers here's the the results that i got awesome cuz guess what 99% of entrepreneurs won't do that uh what's some other uh traction you can get can you call uh, a large enterprise player to sign an LOI and say, hey, if you build this, we are interested in a pilot, right? That's phone conversations. That's not you showing product. That's not you building. That's not you putting up a website, LinkedIn page. That's a series of phone calls and emails, right? Uh, a wait list. Can you set up a wait list for prospective customers if you're B2C and get your friends and the people you went to college with and the church you go to to say, hey, help me out join this list, like help me get this out there. Go to an investor and then say, hey, my name's Donald Hawkins. Here's the pain point. Here's my solution. We raising capital for X, Y, and Z. By the way, I have a wait list for X. I have an LOI from this company. And I also have these this survey that I've done with 100 uh, prospective customers that provided me these results. And I'm building a company to meet their specific needs because they told me all these things suck. And for most investors, they'll be like, you know what? That's solid. Because most entrepreneurs, when we go that route, it's like, I'm smart. Here's my solution. And let's rock and roll. Yeah, so I definitely think that, you know, entrepreneurs having access to that that type of experience, you know, from a variety of different industries is, is a win-win, right? You know, there's a lot of things that they can learn and pull into their venture themselves. That's a great story. I love that you had a 3D ultrasound company. And, you know, speaking of, of a 3D ultrasound company, you had use for one uh, pretty recently because you've got a, a new baby in your house. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the, the, the greatest venture ever. So uh, I have a, a eight-year-old daughter and, uh, and a newborn son. Uh, and uh, he is just the light of my life, uh, super amazing kid, uh, makes everything I do that much more worth it because now I'm, I'm starting to get up in my age and I'm thinking of myself legacy. What am I going to leave my babies, right? Uh, what can they look back at their dad's uh, history and experiences and say, man, my dad did X. First things first, you know, I want to make sure that I'm the most amazing father. Uh, I like to have a lot of fun with my kids. I'm one of those real playful dads. Uh, as well, the 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 ones that the kids always shake their heads at. I don't care. But that's just that's how I roll. You're my kid. You got to deal with it. Uh, but also, man, just just recognizing that uh, my mom, dad, grandparents did such a good job of putting me and my sisters and cousins in great positions. That man, I, I feel that pressure that I have to be able to level my kids up, right? Because it's all about impact. I want to help as many people as I can. And uh, that's something that has also been been a part of the startups that I get involved with. I, I love tech. I love fixing, you know, significant pain points. But I really love ventures that also do good by doing good by helping people, even if, if it's vicariously through a client. 
Well, we're about to get into kind of what you're up to now with Griffin and and 10th, and I'm excited to hear about that. But first, I have to take a break to talk about Pipeline Entrepreneurs for a second, because we are the actual sponsor for today. And we are on our final episode. And we are so appreciative of Startup Hustle Podcast, letting us take over four episodes this week to talk about the fact that it is 2021 recruiting season for Pipeline. So if you are an entrepreneur, high growth entrepreneur in the Midwest, in Nebraska, Kansas, or Missouri, make sure you go to pipelineentrepreneurs.com and apply for our 2021 fellowship. So, Donald, I will jump in with that with you. So, you... wait, 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 Melissa. No, we, we can't let them off that easy. No, you heard, <laughs> you heard Melissa. Go to the website right now. Melissa, what's the website? Pipelineentrepreneurs.com. Pause the video. Pause the audio right now. Go to the website, click apply, get it done. All right. So you're talking to an entrepreneur who uh, who went into uh, pipeline with a fledgling concept of an idea, and and I can thank pipeline for a very large part of of what I'm doing today uh, as well. So yeah, I'm not gonna let Melissa off that easy. Go and do it now. All right, do it. Well, what was speaking of that? What did you learn? So you. When you were in Pipeline, so we do four modules a year with world-class leaders, three days of intensive training, four times a year for your fellowship year. What were some of your hardest memories from that, things that were tough to learn, but you're glad you learned it? And then some of the best things where you just came away and you're like, yeah, I, I feel like I can conquer the world after this. Yeah, well, I cannot start without talking about my good buddy, Mr. Bob Jones. Bob <laughs> Jones, Bob Jones. Uh, Bob Jones uh, was uh, behind one of the first modules and was just super helpful in helping me figure out who my customers were. So, uh, you know, that, that was what the focus of that specific module was, discussing, you know, your customers, understanding your customers, you know, building your company to suit your customers. And I went into that module without really having any idea whatsoever, you know, what my model was, should be, and who my customers really should be. And uh, Bob, you know, and uh, and Yvette and everybody else really played a very significant role in, in helping me figure that out. I mean, it was intense, right? Uh, but man, it made things so much easier for me as things started to kind of move forward because I really went all into understanding the real pain points uh, behind my customers, uh, the the true motivations, and not even just from a business perspective. Who were those people personally, right? Are they looking to build up in their career? Are they at the end of their career? Have they reached the ceiling? And it really caused me to rethink the wording on my website, uh, my conversations with them, my demos. You know, it made me think of the question, you know, what is heaven for my customer? Is it simply a sale, right? Or Or is it this person is trying to work with a product that will make them look good so that later on down the line when they want to get a promotion or a raise, they can say, I'm the person that brought this on board. I mean, so we went really, really deep. Uh, and moving through the other modules was, I mean, it was just butter, right? You know, because once I really got an idea of who my customers were, uh, I had a great idea of the pricing because I asked the customers what they would be willing to pay. Uh, my financials also were in a really good spot because, you know, we were early enough in the process where we kind of had the ability to uh, build on a really good foundation uh, as well. So, uh, I mean, I, I cannot thank Pipeline and the uh, the mentors and instructors enough. Uh, 
and again, large part of what I'm doing today, you know, uh, is attributed to those modules for sure. And so, not even talking about the pers the personal relationships, right? That that's an even better situation. It's a good crew of people. I will tell you that those the pipeline members are phenomenal. So glad that you're one of them. So catch us up to speed. So we left off before the break with the you know the ultra 3D ultrasound company. We're talking about pipeline. You went in with Griffin early stage. You're winning awards now. You just you just won the next stage um, event with getting walking out of that with three banks as clients and and partners. So catch us up to speed. Tell us about Griffin. Tell us about you know, kind of your journey with with that company. Yeah. So Griffin, I started off uh, as uh, an entrepreneur in residence program at MBKC Bank. Uh, so true to form, you know, from pipelines, really getting to know your customer. You can't get to know them any better by literally working next to them, like, you know, day by day. So the EIR program was a three-month uh, program that MBKC kind of created uh, for me. And I got to learn from the, the, the bank's uh, president, COO, CFO, chief deposit officer on a daily basis and really just pester them pretty much. Uh, they had an open door policy keyword is, is had. I'm pretty sure that I, I made some changes, you know, uh, to really learn, man, what, what do you guys, you know, fear about, you know, the, the future of banking and just the industry? And we built a product to suit uh, specifically for them. Uh, so Griffin uh, helps community banks and credit unions with what they now know is a uh, and significant lack of context. Customers don't really go to banks and they don't develop that face-to-face -face relationship the way they used to. Uh, but now everything has moved to digital means, digital insights. Uh, COVID-19 has definitely accelerated that even more. We're now going to a bank to sit down with a banker is the last thing most people have on their minds. Uh, so Griffin connects all of those disparate forms of data uh, to help our banks understand who their customers are and also their wants and needs. Um, and it's been a great fit for banks. Uh, we've been very fortunate to uh, build some really great partners. Again, distribution was a really big focus for me going into this, e even more so than the product. If I built the most amazing product, you know, who can I go to to accelerate sales? Uh, and we were very fortunate to get some really good distribution partners in place uh, to help that company scale and grow. So now the company is six employees strong, uh, working out really, really well. Uh, I've actually been uh, delegating more. I've been taking off more hats and handing it off to other skilled people. And the company is actually growing at a very rapid pace uh, right now, specifically because of that as well. So that part's been neat, right? You know, giving up responsibilities uh, is, is now helping the company grow. And I'm realizing that it was actually me that was to an extent holding the company back because I was doing too much. Uh, so that part has been really neat. Uh, good number of clients, uh, great pipeline of clients as well. And uh, really excited for the future of Griffin. So that leads me into, you know, so Griffin's in, in the banking space. And I know this other thing that you have going right now that is really starting to take off um, is around banking, but it's also around impact. So tell me about 10th. Yeah, so March 25th uh, was a day that changed a lot for a lot of people in our country. So that was the day that George Floyd was killed uh, in Minnesota. And unfortunately, that's not the first time this has happened, you know, in the black community, or just communities in general. Uh, but 
I'm starting to realize things as I've gotten older of how, as Americans, we just become so accustomed to things. Uh, when Sandy Hook happened many, many years ago, it was, you know, traumatizing for the entire country, right? We, I didn't want to work. Uh, I was pissed off. Everybody was pissed off. But now, you know, when you've heard about, oh, there was a shooting in Oklahoma, you know, or shooting in, in Missouri, it's like, oh, that really sucks, man. We got to do something about that. Hey, what's for lunch? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we moved past those issues so quickly. But because COVID forced all of us to stay in our homes and we couldn't get back to the regularly scheduled program, really forced a lot of Americans to really look at the things that were going on in our country, systemic things, and really ask some tough questions. Why does this keep happening? Right. You know, what can be done to really fix it? And it caused me to think a little bit deeper. And I started to recognize that the black community, every generation was fighting the exact same fights. Right. I mean, what what true successes, what true wins have been put in place where we can stand on those wins and go, great. At least we got all this really cool stuff accomplished. There's the same types of fights. You know, there's, there's still underemployment, still, you know, uh, undereducated, you know, in a lot of systemic reasons. Right. Where our uh, schools and school systems in black areas always seem to be having issues with funding. Like how much longer are we going to talk about that? Right. And when you really start to peel away at the onion, everything in our community really points to money or lack of money. And in this country, you know, money is power. And if you don't understand how money works, how can you control anything, right? You know, you look at Wall Street and even the terminology and language that they use, that's not something that you learn in middle school, high school, or even college. I mean, so the, those things are set up and, and there's a, a large gap in between people who grow up in, in areas in our country without that type of education or access to that education to be able to learn how money works. I had a great call with a mentor of mine. Um, this was maybe about a month and a half ago uh, where, you know, he's in his mid fifties um, and he was like, man, you know what? I just really learned the, the true breadth of how money works in the last four to five years of my life. And I realized for the bulk of my life, the, the, building wealth from buying a home, you know, investing in the stock market, things of that nature. He was like, man, that only got me to like the four yard line. He was like, there's so many other ways that money is made from private equity, you know, from people purchasing and selling commodities. A lot of my, my friends, we're in an age now where we're always talking about stock and it's always the common stock. Oh, you got to buy this stock in Apple. You got to buy this stock in Nike. But I'm like, yeah, but this other guy that I know, he just bought wheat, right? So is, is wheat better to buy than, than Apple stock, you know, or, you know, just things that we just really aren't exposed to. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's really what kind of caused me to look at money uh, a little bit differently for the African-American community. And um, I wasn't happy, you know, with the options that I saw out there. You know, the black banks really don't have the scale and the technology to be able to service uh, the the bulk of the community, uh, as I think it should. Uh, and then also in the neobank space, there was really not really many companies that were out there that was addressing those specific needs. It, everybody kind of was in this gray area, was like, here's a bank for underserved communities or a bank for diverse people or people of color. And I feel that, like even with a, a tech venture, this is where that experience kind of plays a role, is you go to an investor and they're going to tell you every single time, focus on your target market worry about the broad market later. So in this specific case, 
the target market of African America needed a specific focus, right? Not an underserved community focus, not a diverse community focus, not a people of color focus, African American community focus as well. And uh, that's what led to the development of uh, a neobank specifically for Black America that we're calling Dent. So for those who are listening who may not know what a neobank is, tell us a little bit about what a ne- explain if you don't mind explaining what a neobank is. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So neobanks, you know, not very old, right? I mean, I think the industry is only about eight to eight to ten years old. Uh, and essentially neobank, new bank, uh, are technology companies that build on top of existing banking infrastructure. Uh, so there are a number of banks mm-hmm. around the world uh, that have the PCI compliance, the depository pieces, uh, regulatory pieces as well, uh, but they don't really dig too much into technology. Uh, neobanks have the luxury of being able to build front-end mobile apps that can connect to some of these banks as well and uh, bring on new customers, bring on depository accounts, uh, and do a lot of really neat things when it comes to money management. Uh, so it's a true partnership. Uh, I mean, a lot of people may have heard recently that Vero Money, which started off as a neobank, was the first U.S. bank to now uh, be, have its own bank charter. So Vero Bank is now a, a full-fledged bank. They can hold their own deposit accounts. Uh, large companies like Chime, that a lot of people are aware of, also a neobank, uh, meaning they actually are sponsored by two traditional banking uh, companies uh, here in the U.S. as well. Uh, now, they're a $14 billion company, you know, so they could likely go after their own banking charter, but uh, but they've done a really good job. You know, and it's kind of that that combination of bank regulation and compliance, you know, mixed with the innovation uh, and technology of technology companies, kind of how neobanks come to play. Got it. Well, so what is your, what's your hope in a year from now? Where, where do you see yourself? Where do you see 10th, Griffin, all of those things? Because as we wrap it up, I'd love to hear where, where do you want to be and where do you hope to be in the next year? Yeah. You know, so we're, we're definitely making some adjustments, uh, very difficult to, to run two companies. So I'm, I'm making some adjustments where I'm bringing on more talent on the Griffin side of things. We actually have a, a really solid group of operators uh, with companies that, that they've exited uh, that I'm looking to bring on board to, to run the day-to-day of Griffin. So pretty excited about that. Uh, and I feel they're going to do an amazing job. Uh, lots of experience there. Uh, I think Griffin is going to be in a very good position uh, in the next 12 months. Uh, you know, you know, uh, a little bit over maybe a hundred, you know, uh, banking partners that we currently have in the pipeline. And I, I think we'll get a, a large number of them on board as customers. On the 10 side of things, uh, we definitely anticipate to have a very large number of uh, members. Uh, we have a wait list now of nearly 40,000 people that have already uh, joined us. Uh, and we anticipate with uh, being a little bit aggressive with our marketing and advertising that, you know, we could easily get to a little bit under a million users by the end of 2021 as well. So uh, lots of growth from an impact perspective. You know, our goal is really simple. You know, can I go and find, you know, those 20 something men and women who may not have had access uh, to financial literacy and education and help provide them a, a new, safer, healthier path to understand how their money works and also to put money to work as well. Uh, if we can start to reverse engineer 
or reverse some of the uh, the habits and tendencies, you know, uh, of people, then we can now start to create, you know, those healthier habits. And when they have kids, their kids will pick up on their parents' healthier financial habits as well. So uh, really excited about it. Well, I am as well. And I'm just so proud of you. So thankful that you were able to be on the podcast with me today as I got to guest host. And so I will just, you know, again, thank you for all that you're doing for Kansas City, for the region, for the community. Just you're doing great work. We know you're going to keep doing it. And we're just really appreciative that you were here. And so once again, today's episode at the Startup Hustle was sponsored by my organization, Pipeline Entrepreneurs a fellowship of entrepreneurs. If you're interested in learning more about joining our 2021 fellowship class, visit pipelineentrepreneurs.com to apply today. Donald, thank you so much. Do it now. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.